turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible, look in the table of contents, find the page number for the Gospel of Luke, and that's where we will be, the 10th chapter of Luke, verses 25 through 37. I want to ask you to follow along in your Bible as I read. Then we're going to ask God to to help us this morning understand and apply his word to our lives. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I want to speak to you this morning on this simple question asked by this lawyer to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Let's pray and let's ask God to help us. Father, we come before you this morning into your word, and we recognize that this is your inerrant, inspired word that speaks to us today as it did 2,000 years ago when Jesus had this conversation with with this lawyer. We pray, God, that you would speak to us powerfully, speak to us in our minds, instruct us, teach us, and I pray that the truths will lead us to greater action as we love God and love others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. So my most common amen corner this morning has lost his voice. There he is, raising his hand. (laughs) What that means is I'm going to need some help today because Tony ain't going to be helping me as much, all right? Here are a couple newspaper headlines. After crash with suspected drunk driver, Good Samaritan helps save man. Tulsa couple has stolen truck return thanks to Good Samaritan. 
Good Samaritan recalls helping trooper at scene of fiery crash. In our day and age, uh, we use the term Good Samaritan as a nickname or a reference, often a newspaper headline, for someone who has performed a heroic deed. They have done something, accomplished something on behalf of another that is worthy of a newspaper article. As a matter of fact, we use the term Good Samaritan today in our culture in the same way that we use the term saint. Meaning we typically use the word saint to reference those who are extremely devout, have done a lot of good deeds, usually a reference to someone who is deceased and who's lived a legacy, a life worth emulating. But only the few could be called saints. Only the super, super, super religious could be called saints. But what if when we read the Bible, we realize that the Bible calls every Christian a saint? What if, if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you are, according to the Bible, a saint? Now I say we use the word saint in the same way that we use the word Good Samaritan today in our culture, meaning we typically reserve the title Good Samaritan for the few the remarkable, the memorable, the heroic. But what if every Christian is called to be a good Samaritan? What if being a good Samaritan is as fundamental to our Christian faith as it is for us to love God? Here's the question that Jesus is getting at as he focuses on what it looks like to be a disciple of him. The question he's getting at is this, can I love God and ignore the needs of others? Can I choose between love for God and love for fellow humanity? In our text this morning, a lawyer stands up. Lawyer is not what we typically think of as a lawyer today in America. A lawyer in Jesus' day would have been a theologian, someone who is studying not the law of America, but the law of God. The first five books of the Bible primarily, he would have been someone that devoted his life to the study of God's law. And keep in mind that in Israel, the law of God was the law of the land. And so this is a very important figure who comes to Jesus, a religious and political figure in many ways, comes to Jesus with a question. Now Luke tells us the motive behind his question. He uh, says that he puts Jesus to the test. The question that he's about to ask is a fairly innocent question, but it's not the question where the lawyer has already gone wrong. It is the intent behind the question. He's wanting to stump the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so he puts forward this question and he asks him, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The emphasis in that question is on the word do. Do is uh, an action. He's, he's as a good uh, uh, lawyer of his day, he's looking for the rules. By what rules might I live by in order to inherit eternal life? What does he mean, I wonder, by eternal life? Eternal life was a nickname in Jewish society for this day when, when God comes to resurrect all the, the, those who are not part of God's people will be judged, and those who are part of God's people will be res- resurrected to eternal life. I believe that this lawyer, or scribe, he's called in uh, 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 some other translations, I believe that he is asking a question, how might I be sure to partake, to be a participant in that future resurrection? Now Jesus asks him a question, and I love watching Jesus debate. I love watching Jesus be asked questions. I love watching and learning from him, because what he does is when someone comes with a loaded question, he turns the table and he asks them to give him the answer. So he says, you know, you're, you're a student of the law, you tell me. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Or how do you understand it? How do you interpret it? The lawyer goes on and answers him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, I have to imagine Jesus smiling at this point, because this man is actually quoting Jesus. He's uh, uh, giving Jesus the very answer that Jesus himself has previously given. This is an answer that strings together three different Old Testament passages and and presents the, the, the very center of what it means to be part of God's family, and that is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus, maybe with a smile on his face, says to him, you have answered correctly. Well done. Jesus goes on to say, do this and you will live. Now, we have to pause for just a moment. When Jesus says, do this and you will live, what does he mean? Because some people say that Jesus here is arguing for a works-based salvation. Works-based righteousness. Meaning, if you do all of these good deeds for God and for fellow man, then you will be an inheritor of eternal life. Is Jesus arguing for a works-based salvation? My answer is certainly not. Jesus, in the very previous section, as he's describing the joy of the disciple, he tells his disciples that your name is written in heaven not because of what you've done, not because of your actions. Your name is there because God decided to write it there. It is purely by God's grace that you are saved. Fundamental to our understanding as Christians is that we are saved by grace. We're saved by grace. 
not by doing the law, not by works. There is no good deed that we can do. Paul says, my good works, all of them, the best of them, whereas filthy rags. Not by works, which you have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved you. For by grace you have been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace, through faith, trusting Jesus Christ. That is how we become inheritors of the kingdom of God. So the question then is, what in the world does Jesus mean by do this and you will live? Well, what is he saying? Do what? Love. 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 Love is the other side of the faith coin. Love is how James understands faith, the outworking of faith. Meaning, I don't believe Jesus is giving him rules. As a matter of fact, I think Jesus is giving him the opposite. What he's saying is it's not about what you do externally. It's about your heart, lawyer. It's about your passions, scribe. It's about your inner being, legalist. Love. The Lord your God. With all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the outworking of faith. Jesus is saying you are saved by grace through faith. Do this, and you will live. The lawyer then seeking to justify himself, meaning I think he was a little embarrassed. He was a little embarrassed because he presented this big question and he thought he was going to stump Jesus. Jesus turns the table and he's just left with nothing. So he's got to show how complex this actually is. He's got to show how difficult this question actually is. And so he says, ah, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The answer that Jesus gives to the lawyer's question is as relevant for us 2,000 years later as it was to this lawyer and to the disciples at the time of Jesus Christ. The answer that Jesus is about to give is as challenging for us today as it was to him then. Who is my neighbor? What Jesus is about to show him is that your neighbor is anybody who has a need. Your neighbor is anybody who has a need. And that is just our problem because we feel like we have a need. We feel like we have a need. Do you know that needy people can't serve others? Do you know that when you are a needy individual, all you can do is sit back and ask, why don't somebody call me? Do you know when you're a needy individual, all you can ask is, why doesn't somebody ever visit me? 
When you're a needy individual, all you can do is ask, why doesn't somebody ever give me some money? Needy people are unable to help others. And let's be honest, I'm looking in the mirror. We're a needy bunch. As a result of our neediness, it is very difficult to serve and love others. I'm telling you, what we're about to read is convicting and challenging. Because we are needy. Needy people will help occasionally. Needy people will help those who help them. Needy people might help those, a couple people in their church, who they like, who they benefit from. Needy people will help their friends. Needy people will help those who are in their corner. But it's, it's a little different than the kind of love that we're about to see here, I'm telling you. Because needy people help those who help them. They do what benefits them. And so we ask the same question that the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Meaning, who do I have to help? Who do I have to love? Or we could turn that around and put it in another way. Who do I not have to love? Who am I exempt from? Please tell me. Well, what does it mean to love our neighbor? I want to look at this passage. And I want us to walk together and journey together as a church as we explore this question. What does it mean to love our neighbor? We see first that loving your neighbor is indiscriminate. We do not discriminate as we love. Jesus begins to tell this story. This is the way he answers the question. And the story begins with a certain man. A certain man is on a journey. He's on a journey on a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. This is known as the Jericho Road. For hundreds of years, even after the death of Christ, the Jericho Road remained a notorious road to journey. The Jericho Road has a 3,000-foot descent. It is a 17-mile stretch of stones and rock, winding paths and caves all along the way. The Jericho Road was a dangerous road, not because of the descent or the stones, but because it was a perfect spot for bandits and robbers to hide out in the caves and around the turns, waiting for weary travelers. A man has been walking down this road, and Jesus paints a picture that probably would have been fairly common in their day. This man is robbed. He's beat. He's bloodied. And in verse 30, we see that he is left for dead. He is fighting for his life. 
He's not in a good spot right now. Now in verse 31, we see the words, by chance. By chance, meaning, ironically, it just so happened that a priest was walking along the path. Oh, what good news that must be. You've got a guy who's, who's fighting for his life, and just by chance, a priest is coming up the path. Thanks be to God. Help has arrived. The priest's response to the beaten man is meant to be shocking. In verse 31, we see that the priest sees the man. But he moves to the other side of the road. And he passes by. I want you to just, just sit with the irony for a moment. This priest is living according to ceremonial standards of his day. Do not touch blood. Do not touch a corpse. Stay away. In his mind, he's probably too important to put himself into the danger of stopping on the Jericho Road. The priest is ordering his life in such a way that he will seek to, by following rules, inherit eternal life. Yet he's missing the very concept, the very basic application of faith, and that is to love. The priest moves to the other side of the streets, and if the man is even conscious, I can only uh, imagine what he's going through as he hears the steps diminish. To make matters worse, it happens twice. A second man comes along. This man is a Levite. This is another religious leader in the Jewish system. A Levite comes along and follows in the same steps as the priest. He sees the man who's fighting for his life and he moves to the other side of the street and he keeps on walking. The point that Luke is trying to make, or Jesus is trying to make, that Luke has recorded here, is that the entire Jewish system, religious system, has failed to live out the most basic aspect of our faith, and that is to love the needy, the hurting, the dying. So how do we love? Well, the story goes on. And we see love does not discriminate. Jesus says, there was another man coming up the path. And this man was a Samaritan. Everybody say Samaritan. I can only imagine that Jesus is looking at his disciples in the corner of his eye as he's having this conversation. Because if you remember, not too long ago, his disciples just asked if they could call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village. Disciples. Here comes a Samaritan. A Samaritan. This would be like saying that there is a 
an undocumented immigrant walking up the street and someone who can't stand immigrants has been beaten. This would be like saying a white supremacist was left for dead and an African-American man was walking up the street. Like, what, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's saying the, 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 these, these communities uh, that, that are polar opposites, uh, the one who's left for dead, we assume he's a Jew, and we assume that the one who's left for dead despises Samaritans. No, 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 no. This ain't going to be a Samaritan that comes to the rescue. We hate the Samaritans. They're good for nothing. They're wicked people. They're evil. We despise the Samaritans. The Samaritan comes along and, and he shows us what it looks like to love. You see, we love so often as humanity according to the cultural and racial and political lines that we draw. And we look out for those in our tribe. And we demonize and despise those not in our tribe in a way that is filled with hate. And the end of hate is death, murder. We don't care if they live. Jesus is crushing the lines as he's answering this question, who is my neighbor? He's essentially saying, this, your neighbor, or the question is not who is my neighbor, but the question is, is do you serve? Period. Well, I serve if it's my family, but Jesus calls us to serve all. I serve if they're in my church, but Jesus calls us to serve and love all. I serve if they are of my ethnicity, but Jesus calls us to serve and love all. I serve if I personally know them, but Jesus calls us to serve all. It's indiscriminate. We, 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 we uh, have our lines that we've drawn crushed by Jesus at this point. With this very word, a Samaritan is coming up this path. We also see in the Samaritan's example that loving your neighbor is to see, it's to be aware. In verse 33, the Samaritan saw him. He saw him. To neighbor, if I could turn neighboring into a verb, to neighbor is to see a need. That's what it begins with. We, we are aware and we see something. I think of the story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, where Jesus is encountering a crowd of 5,000 individuals, and Matthew tells us that Jesus saw the crowds. You see, there is a difference between seeing and seeing. Does that make any sense? We can physically see something in our eyes but not really see. This is a call for us to be aware, for us to look around, for us to not ignore 
the bad news. If we avoid certain blocks, certain neighborhoods, if we avoid certain people, certain communities, if we avoid ever walking into that community, if we avoid ever leaving our, the comforts of our own home, if we avoid picking up the phone when that needy individual is calling, if we avoid, listen, we will never see. What it means to love is to first have eyes that are aware. Now somebody ought to be looking at the passage and recognizing that the priest and the Levite also saw. He says that of both of them. The priest saw the man. The Levite saw the man. Well, we don't stop with just seeing. We don't just see the need and feel bad. There's a big difference between the response of the priest and the Levite and the response of the Samaritan. Verse 31 the, the Samaritan, I'm sorry, verse 33, the Samaritan saw him and he had what? Somebody? He had compassion on him. Oh, this again reminds me of Jesus in Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. Jesus sees this crowd of 5,000 people. And the Bible says that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, which means that he saw them through a spiritual lens. He saw them not with just uh, uh, the, the, the physical realities of this world of people who might annoy him or people who want a lot from him, but he saw them through the lens of eternity. And the very next line in Matthew 14 is that Jesus had compassion on them. And what does Jesus do? He performs the only miracle that is recorded in four Gospels, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. Why does he do that? Not just to feed hungry bellies, but to feed hungry souls, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In the same way, the, the good Samaritan sees the need, and it says he had compassion on the man. Compassion in the original language, is a word that means to be moved in the bowels. That's kind of interesting. A bowel movement, if you would. <laughs> oh, how language changes. But we see something, though, in, in, in that, in, in that picture. When, when there is a significant need, and you see it, uh, and you see it through... Uh, the, the, uh, an eternal lens or the lens uh, through which Christ might see it. What happens? You feel something, don't you? There's a movement that happens. Now, not a bowel movement, don't get me. But, but in a similar area, like in your stomach, uh, you feel something. You are moved. Do you realize that you can't create that? You can't create a feeling. Try it. Try to create, like, be super happy right now. Boom. 
Anybody? Be super compassionate, like you just want to weep. Nobody? You can't, you can't create it. It's a response of faith. It's fruit of the Christian life. Meaning, if I'm not feeling compassion, it's not that I just go out and work up some compassion. I've got to get on my knees and pray to the Lord of compassion. God, fill me with your love for people. Give me eyes to see. And give me bowels that move. Don't pray that. The, the English word that we use for compassion comes from the concept of suffering with. To have compassion is to enter into somebody's suffering. To have compassion is to feel what this victim is feeling. And it is a genuine, real suffering that we feel. Compassion moves. Compassion responds. Going back earlier to Jesus' teaching, we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. That is a picture of love which requires the whole of one's being. It requires our emotions and our consciousness, and our, our drive, and our intellect. Love responds with the whole of your being. And I am going to talk about the uh, Good Samaritan's response in just a moment, but what I want you to see is that he responds with everything he has. His emotions are involved. His very consciousness, his life is involved. His intellect is involved as he moves along in a skilled fashion. His strength is involved as he uses his resources. But before we get to that, let me make one more point, and that is this. Loving your neighbor is dangerous. Loving your neighbor is dangerous work. The Levite and the priest, they kept it moving. I would not be surprised that one of the reasons they kept it moving was because you don't stop on Jericho Road. Especially if you see somebody who's been robbed. This could be a setup. What if the bandits that robbed this man are right around the corner or in a cave waiting to rob the person who comes to help him? What if I stop and I help this man and this becomes my fate? What about my family? What about my friends? What about my own life? This was dangerous work. This Samaritan stops. He stops on the Jericho Road. 
he begins to love in a way that could very well cost him his own life. But for Christians from the time of Christ until now, safety is never our number one priority. I'm not saying don't put locks on your doors. I'm not saying be foolish and go try to get yourself hurt. That's insanity. Nobody likes to be hurt, and we shouldn't desire that. But we love something more than our own safety. We love something more than even our own life, and that is the Christ who gave himself up for us. And if we can love someone else in the way that Christ has loved us, that's better than our safety. When you are making decisions about where to spend your life, where to live, how to order your life, let safety be part of that conversation, but not the primary conversation. Let's not idolize safety in a way that would keep us from loving those who are lost and dying and going to hell. Loving your neighbor is dangerous. You're in danger when you love your neighbor of being taken advantage of. When you love your neighbor, you are in danger of pouring yourself out and feeling a little burned out. When you love your neighbor, you are in danger of losing a whole evening where you could have just enjoyed some life. Like there is real danger from the top to the bottom when we are called to love. It is dangerous. And lastly, loving your neighbor is costly. It is costly. Let's look at the Samaritan's actions. What does he do? It says that he uh, bandages his wounds. He rips his own clothing. He takes off his head wrap, perhaps, or his undergarment, and he begins ripping his own clothing into shreds, making makeshift bandages to save the man's life, to stop the bleeding. He takes oil and wine, which, you know, he brought for himself. This is what he had for his journey. He took what he brought for himself, and he uses it on this dying man's body, oil to soothe the pain and wine to act as a disinfectant to clean the wounds. He then puts the man onto his own donkey and goes back. Now we can only assume then that he's walking since the man is riding his donkey. Walking along this long, dangerous, difficult path all the way to an inn. He gets to an inn and he leaves the man at the inn. He comes back the next day. Maybe it was nighttime and he wakes up in the morning, right back to the inn, drops down two denarii. That's enough for two months' stay at the inn. 
And then he promises to the innkeeper, do all that you can to save this man's life. And when I come back, I'm going to make up the difference, whatever money I owe you. He commits to returning and to making sure that this man survives. That is costly, church. To love others is to see It is to act even if that's dangerous. It is to love in such a way that is costly. It is ultimately to take responsibility for another individual. This is the picture Jesus gives us of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. As we close, let me ask you, how should we read this passage? Let me give you three ways that I think we should read it. Three applications or three ways that it could impact us. Number one, this passage should be an encouragement. This should come across as an encouragement to you as it does to me as I study it. Some years ago, my wife and I had some friends that got into direct marketing. That's where you sell things and your friends become your customers. Familiar with that, right? And so they were trying to sell us some things. And their big thing was we could join this team and make a lot of money. And they were explaining why it's so great to make a lot of money. We plan to make millions off of this. And just think of what we could do for the church or for other people, if we make so much money. Don't you want to help people? Make a lot of money, right? Listen, the way that mentality always goes, which is the mentality of so many individuals, and that is this. Helping others is just a little bit out of my reach. I can't actually do it right now with my resources. It requires millions of dollars. It requires resources and things and houses and places that I don't have. For some, oh, they want to help, but it requires a personality that I don't have. It's just out of reach. I find this encouraging because it shows us that loving others is not just out of reach. It actually happens as we travel along the way. Not some millionaire, a certain man. Not some amazing individual, a Samaritan. Who saw a need and acted with compassion. This is an encouragement for regular folks like you and me. That we right now can help and love others as we live our lives every day and see needs. As we recognize that the person who has that need is our neighbor. And we meet that need. It also encourages us in a couple other ways. It encourages us, for those of you who are already extending yourselves to love others. You've, 
you are someone who is loving in this way, I can think of people in this room who would be wonderful examples of what it looks like to love our neighbor. To love the person that has a need. It's worth it. It's good. As you live on your block, as you share the little bit of resources that you do have to love another. And as you do this, one way that this encourages you is that this good Samaritan was not called to save everybody. I can only imagine that during this couple-day period, there were others who were robbed on the Jericho Road. The Samaritan is called to love those within his proximity, to love those who he has the ability to love, to save just one. And that's what it means to love others. Also, we see, and this is encouraging, that there weren't some massive big end results. Like, we don't know whatever happened to this man that was robbed. As a matter of fact, maybe the reason he was robbed was because he was on his cell phone and couldn't get his head up, and he still couldn't get his head up, and he got robbed the next week. Maybe. Does it matter? No. We don't love in order to achieve some kind of end result. We love, we serve, period. That is the purpose. That is the purpose. Not some grand, big, end, long-term result. It is simply taking the opportunity that God has given you to love. Now, secondly, it is also convicting, isn't it? While it is encouraged, and I want you guys to be encouraged this morning, I also want us to be a little convicted. When we were at the Southern Baptist Convention a couple weeks ago, somebody came up to me, and it was the most random interaction. He comes up to me and he says, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, I don't know. How many? 100. Okay. Takes one to change the light bulb and 99 to argue about whether or not and how it should be changed. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. All right. What's your name? Gotcha. <laughs> that was pretty much it. But I, but I kind of like that joke, though. <laughs> Because, listen, we, can, we are really good at encountering a problem and making a simple solution this big deal. Do we have a budget for it? Isn't this supposed to be a, a church, church function? A church thing? Isn't there somebody else that could do this? Should we put a committee together and... And, and maybe, like, start a big organization to see if we could figure out how to change this light bulb? I think that joke kind of makes a good point, doesn't it? Like, there's something as simple as meeting a need. And we got to turn it into this big deal. I want us to be a little convicted. 
to just realize that sometimes we just don't meet needs. We want to start things. We want to grow things. We want organizations. We want all these massive solutions because we don't want to do the simple task of changing a light bulb. Serving the individual in need. It's convicting for me because Jesus says to the man, go and do likewise. And I can spiritualize this all I want, but I hear Jesus saying that to us. We are to go and do likewise. It exposes my own selfishness. When I know that I could help, but I just choose not to because I'm tired. It's convicting. For some, we should be convicted in the fact that we serve our home so well, but fail to serve those outside of our home. For others, it should be convicting because we serve those outside of our home so well, but we fail to serve those inside of our home. Depends on how you're wired. We are called to serve and to love and to give ourselves to all. It is encouragement. It is convicting. And thirdly, it is grace. It is grace. Turn to Hebrews 12. I don't do this often. Turning to a new passage at the end of my sermon, but go ahead and do it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For those of you who have had kids or you work with kids, you know how kids, when they're like <clears throat> two, three, four years old, they have so much desire to help, but they're unable. So like my son, my Chapman, he's, he's two. He really wants to help put the dishes away. But he's unable. Something strange happens as they get older. By the time they're 11, 12, 13, 14, they're able. But they're unwilling. I want, to, I want you to see the grace in this passage. I want you to see how we are called to be able and willing and that Christ not only makes us able, but he makes us willing. You see, we are a needy people, aren't we? And needy people cannot help others. But I wonder if your needs have been met in Christ. I don't necessarily mean your temporal needs, but your real needs. Forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. Security, hope, joy, fellowship, community. I wonder if you could testify to the fact that I was once a needy individual, but Christ has met my needs. Our greatest helper, the greatest Samaritan, if you would, 
is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, who was willing to help us. He was willing to serve us. He was willing to take our place in death. To enter into the greatest, most dangerous mission of all, and that is to die for the sins of humanity. Oh, Christ was willing to do that. But Christ was also able to do that. He was the only one who had the ability to really meet our needs. To serve us in such a way that we then, who become recipients of His service, willingly desire to serve other people. Why? Because Christ showed us mercy. A mother was pleading before a judge that the judge would show mercy to her son. And the judge said, this boy doesn't deserve mercy. And the mother said, that's the point of mercy. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. I ain't even going to tell you what he deserves, but he doesn't deserve mercy. And that's what makes mercy mercy. Mercy is love extended to those who don't deserve it. We were enemies of God. We were rebels without a cause. We spat in the face of Christ. I drove the nails into the hands and the feet of Christ. I don't deserve His help. I don't deserve His mercy. But look at what Hebrews 12, verse 2 says about Christ. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at this. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now listen, the joy for Jesus wasn't in the cross. He endured the cross. He endured it. You don't, you don't endure something. You don't endure vacation. You don't endure a good meal. You endure suffering. You endure something that is difficult. Oh, the good Samaritan, I doubt he enjoyed every aspect of what it meant to love. But he endured it. Jesus Christ endured the cross. He put up with it. He went through it. He willingly took it on Himself. Why? He did it for joy. Because of the joy that is set before Him. The joy of being obedient to the Father. The joy of winning a people for Himself. The joy of cleansing His bride of their sin. The joy of seeing New believers rejoice in their salvation. This brings Jesus joy. He did it for joy. He saved us for this ultimate goal of joy. Rising again three days later from the dead, Jesus shows 
the world and us that he is the one who is able and willing to help. And he has helped us. He has given us all we need. Someone who has been served like that can serve others, not out of a begrudged duty, but out of joy. The joy that is set before us in following after and becoming like our older brother, Jesus Christ, as we are called to be his hands and his feet in the world in which we live. Family, let us love our neighbor. Father, we pray that you would help us do just that. We thank you for Jesus Christ enduring the cross for the joy of redemption, the joy of salvation that was set before him, accomplishing this great task on our behalf. God, I pray that we would be moved by that same kind of love and with joy endure the pain of what it often means to serve and love others and do so with this greater mission of being like our older brother, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.